Welcome to Anthrobites, the Anthropod series designed to make anthropology more digestible. Each episode tackles a key concept, text, or theme, and breaks it down into manageable bite-sized chunks. I'm your host, Jarrah Carrington, and our guest today is Dr. Margot Weiss, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Anthropology at Wesleyan University. Dr. Weiss is also Associate Professor of American Studies and Feminist Gender and Sexuality Studies. She is a cultural anthropologist who combines ethnography with queer theory and left cultural critique. We sat down today to discuss queer anthropology. Welcome to Anthrobites, Dr. Weiss. Oh, thank you. So great to be here. We're lucky to have you here. Just to jump right in, if you could give a brief discussion about what is queer anthropology. Yeah, great question. Well, maybe we should start with queer. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm partial to Eve Sedgwick's classic definition. That's from the early 90s, where she talks about queer as the open mesh of possibilities, gaps, overlaps, dissonances and resonances, lapses and excesses of meaning when the constituent elements of anyone's gender or sexuality aren't made or can't be made to signify monolithically. So that's a mouthful, but I really like the attention to those possibilities, excesses, dissonances, sort of modes of opening, the open mesh. But then I also really like Michael Warner's note, which is also from 1993, that queer is resistant to regimes of the normal. And he's thinking not only about heteronormativity or heterosexuality, but also a wide field of normalization, including the normal business of the academy. So taken together, those are those are sort of my favorite definitions of queer, and they point us beyond LGBTQA, etc. identity to really focus on transgression of or exclusion from normativities, especially but not exclusively heteronormativity. And then at the same time, and you can hear that in Eve Sedgwick's definition too, queer carries with it a kind of aspirational movement. And this is with like Jose Munoz's 2009 note that queerness is about an insistence on potentiality, a concrete possibility for another world. So it's both something that's at odds with the normal or the dominant and a call or a desire to imagine otherwise. So for me, taking taking those understandings of queer, queer anthropology asks after those normativities, which of course vary across cultures, about the different ways that sexuality intersects with with gender, with race, with nation, about the perils and possibilities that alternative modes of desire or sex or intimacy offer. It's not, or at least it's not only a shorthand for, say, the study of gay and lesbian or same-sex identities. It's, it's also a call to think about those intersections of sexual and gender norms and power. That's a great way to conceptualize it and think about it a little bit more broadly than perhaps some people might think about when they think about about queer anthropology and its object of study. You've already mentioned a couple of major influences that you see in the field. Can you talk a little bit about the history of, of what we now call queer anthropology and maybe how it has changed over time and perhaps how the object of study has also changed over time? Well, you know, I mean, this is an open field that has a lot of, there's a lot of different ways, I guess, to tell this history. So uh, I'll give you a few different, maybe parallel uh, lineages. So one place to start would be with feminist anthropology. Gail Rubin's 1984 essay, Thinking Sex, where she argued for a new sexuality studies that would think about sex not as an identity, but what she called a vector of oppression. And she was interested in the various ways sexuality and sexual practices were surveilled and punished by the state. And she was thinking,
thinking about sex workers, BDSM, public sex, any sex outside a sort of normative, marital, heterosexual bed, we'll say. And so that's one very generative place to start thinking about queer anthropology Mm. in in 1984. But then another way to think about it is to note that anthropology has always been a little bit queer, and sexuality has been a part of anthropology since its inception. I mean, not always in ways we'd find laudable today, but certainly from the beginning, I mean, you can't think about how important kinship studies are to anthropology without all already thinking about something like heteronormativity, though, of course, that's not what people called it at the time. So that's another way to think about it. And, and even there, like Margaret Mead was really interested in gender norms and how they varied around the world. Even Evans Pritchard, who is certainly not held up as a laudable queer anthropologist today, classic British social anthropologist, he wrote about what he called sexual inversion among the Azande in southern Sudan in the 60s, 70s. But that wasn't quite queer anthropology. So from that, I would say the real groundbreaking work in what would become queer anthropology was in the 70s and the 80s. And this is work that included Esther Newton's 1979 Mother Camp, book about camp and drag performers in the Midwest. Evelyn Blackwood, The Many Faces of Homosexuality, and Gil Hertz, Ritualized Homosexuality in Melanesia. So this is work in the 70s and 80s that's looking at same-sex sexuality in other societies. But it's also work that starts to raise really interesting theoretical and analytical questions about how to think about homosexuality, and that's sort of in scare quotes, or same-sex sexuality, or gender non-conforming practices practices around the globe. So for instance, if we think about the many faces of homosexuality, are are we understanding that homosexuality elsewhere is going to look or seem the same as how we might understand our own arrangements of homosexuality or gayness or other iterations of same-sex sexuality? So that's work that is foundational, but also raises critical questions. I can give you a quick example. Yeah, that would be great. So I mentioned Gil Hurt's work with the Sambia. This is not a real name in Papua New Guinea. And this is about a series of ritual in which the Samian boys ritually fellated older boys in order to digest their semen. And all of this in order to become men, to grow as men. And I mean, there's a lot to say about that. But her initially described those practices as ritualized homosexuality and was really interested in this practice that was society-wide where in order to grow up to be a man, you would need to ingest orally and directly semen. But even the way that I describe that as fellatio is really an open question. In the mid-90s, Deborah Ellison wrote a critique of Hertz use of the term ritualized homosexuality and argue that instead of seeing this as an example of global same-sex sexualities, we should really think about these practices in context. And in the context of Melanesia, we should think about them in terms of other ritualized fluid exchanges. So other fluid exchanges like blood, like tree sap, so that semen isn't a special category, a sexual category necessarily. She argues we should call 
how these rights seem in practices and try to like desexualize the language we use to talk about. So we're not assuming that what looks to us like fellatio, it means fellatio. So it's a debate not just about the language, like ritualized homosexuality versus semen practices, but what these practices mean and how we can interpret them when we shift cultural context. And especially if the point of this is to make masculine men, this doesn't really seem very queer at all. So this kind of work, I read it, you know, really grappling with our language, our concepts, how they travel, how we can even start to think about, and now we kind of don't know what to call it, homosexuality, same-sex sexuality, these practices in other locations. In the 70s is when what would become queer anthropology is institutionalized with the Anthropology Research Group on Homosexuality, Argo. In 1987, that organization changed its name to SOLGA, the Society of Lesbian and Gay Anthropologists. In 2010, we changed the name again to ACWA, the Association for Queer Anthropology. And so you can even see in here a shift from research group on homosexuality in the 70s to an organization of allied lesbian and gay anthropologists as kind of an identity organization with a variety of research interests to uh, queer anthropology that points in a, a direction other than identity and towards a kind of analytic. And so this is also reflecting what happened in the 90s as queer theory and queer studies really took off across the humanities and the humanistic social sciences. So the 90s and the 2000s in anthropology also saw a kind of flourishing of work in queer anthropology, all taking up core questions of sex, gender, power, identity, social normativity. Well, that segues us really nicely. I'd like to know a little bit more about how you feel like queer anthropology has influenced or informed your own work. Absolutely. My first book, Techniques of Pleasure, BDSM and the Circuits of Sexuality, that book is an ethnography of BDSM communities in the San Francisco Bay Area. I guess I should say BDSM is, is short for bondage and discipline, domination, submission, and sadomasochism. You know, going back to, to somebody like Ruben, of course, you can think about BDSM as a minoritarian sexual community. It's definitely non-normative in a whole variety of ways. So flogging or mastering the art of domination. These are, these are non-normative sexual practices. They're practices that are policed and surveilled, but they also generated all sorts of new ways of thinking about, for instance, consent or desire that are non-normative and empowering ways. But at the same time, and this, and this goes against a, a lot of, of what's claimed about queer communities, including BDSM communities, when you think of them as only transgressive or only non-normative, counter-normative. In other ways, BDSM really reproduces or replicates norms. And I was particularly interested in certain norms of whiteness and ways of not noticing race, racialization, whiteness, and class. That book that in that work was really thinking about BDSM as both oppositionals or counter to norms, but also maybe surprisingly normative in the form of work on the self, the access to markets and sex toys and very expensive products that are really important to BDSM. And then deeper cultural assumptions about free choice and who has the ability to freely choose to perform different kinds of really power laden roles in the realm of fantasy, intimacy. So, you know, even something as simple as thinking about the word slave, you know, 
know, so many of the white people I talked to in the field just didn't see the slave master slave dynamics or slave as it's conceptualized within the scene as related at all to the history of slavery in the United States. So thinking about race, class, capitalism, gender as really intersecting norms. So you're not only thinking about BDSM as a non-normative sexual practice, but also how other norms might be reproduced and strengthened even through transgressive sexual practices. So that to me is a queer analytic, I guess, focus on norms, power, and a really intersectional way of thinking about sexuality. Even though a lot of the people that I talked to were heterosexual, but certainly not all of them. So it's less about, you know, gay and lesbian identity and much more about thinking about sex and power and normativity and really different iterations of normativity. The work I'm doing now is about queer left activists in New York and Chicago and in Montreal. And it's, and it's about the intellectual work queer activists do to imagine an alternative, an alternative world, questions of vision, of desire in the context of what some people have called the nonprofit industrial complex, the ways that organizations are dependent on certain kinds of metrics and grant funding and structures somewhat like our contemporary universities that are disciplining in terms of thinking new thoughts that are sort of not queer in the way that they normalize and reproduce ways that we've already learned how to think rather than opening sort of new pathways. That project, I guess it's a little more, I, yeah, it has a different relationship to queer than the, than the first book. It's about queer politics more directly. But, you know, like the first book, it's interested in thinking about queer politics in relation to sex, economy, power. And it's, you know, like Techniques of Pleasure, it's indebted to queer studies on people who are really theorizing queer as an otherwise or thinking otherwise, because that's so central to the activist. Again, it's it's not really an identity. It's not about activism of or for LGBT folks. It's, it's a push away from the more sort of liberal, rights-based, gay and lesbian political organizations in the U.S., what Lisa Dugan calls homonormative kinds of gay politics, and really thinking about queerness as a more open-ended pursuit of another world. So that's really centrally engaged in crucial questions in queer studies to me, and that's been a real inspiration for me, real help in thinking through some of the material. You participated in a retrospectives collection recently on the Cultural Anthropology website about the future of queer anthropology. And is that kind of how you see queer anthropology going forward in the future? Is moving towards this analytic and away more away from certain kinds of parameters of, of what it is that queer anthropology should be looking at? I mean, yes and no. I, I also think that that tension between thinking about queer as based in same-sex sexuality, but reaching for something else is really central to, to the field in, in all of its iterations. Part of my interest in queer is that it's a term, it's a category that it frustrates us, that is never, never quite what we want it to be, never quite does the work we want it to do. But I'm interested in that frustration as something that brings us to new new work, new ways of thinking, pushes us in, in different directions. Queer becomes more open, shifts in different directions through those contestations, you know, even those early contestations 
those are productive contestations that bring us somewhere else. So to me, one thing that's interesting is that there's, I think, more and more queer anthropology. It doesn't always call itself queer anthropology, but in a way it's sort of, and this has happened in, in feminist anthropology and in, in other fields, there's a way that people are doing queer work outside of the, the sort of strict parameters of sexuality. You know, some of that work is more or less legible as queer, in my view, should be. So like work on non-human animals or multi-species ethnography, work on toxicity, or that's really, it's really pushing at the boundaries of what counts as queer if we're not talking about people or bodies or desire. We're talking across human, non-human boundaries. There's a ton of work coming out in queer of color critique and queer indigenous studies. So Jafari Allen, Shaka McLaughton, both of their work in queer black anthropology, really thinking about the aftermath of slavery and the impact of slavery as a profound degendering. And so what does that do, especially in black trans and queer studies and politics? We can call this intersectional queer anthropology, but we really have to deepen our understanding of intersectionality as that crucial black feminist insight that in order to understand sexual Sexuality, we must explore its intersection with gender, with race, with class, with nation. And when we do that, it really challenges the question of what kinds of normativities we think we're talking about, which has been an issue from the start. So it, we can complexify queer, we can complexify those relationalities, we can complexify what we mean by normativity when we're thinking about it in these intersectional ways. The last set of new work, to me, sort of returns to Gail Rubin to think about sexuality and normativity in broader terms, again, than gay and lesbian identity, work on transnational sex work or sex tourism. And there's been a lot of new work exploring the racialized and gendered fantasies of desire in Brazil, in Cuba, the Dominican Republic, work on BDSM, work on polyamory, global LGBT activism, as we're thinking about how Western concepts and funding streams and organizations, yeah, moved transnationally and then our encounter changed, remade in, in local settings. So that complex interaction between the global and the local, we're thinking about activism today. Those are all ways, I think, to think about sexuality, normativity, power, so queer, but in a more kind of complex global intersectionality, you know, and again, away from that fixation on gay and lesbian identity. So I guess that's a lot of new directions. It's an exciting uh, time to be a part of the field. I think so. I mean, I, I like that. I, I hope it gets messier and messier. That was Dr. Margot Weiss talking us through the history and futures of queer anthropology. You've been listening to Anthrobites, produced by the Society for Cultural Anthropology in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. This episode was made by me, Jarrah Carrington, with executive assistance from Shaban McGuirk. You can find supporting documents as well as teaching and learning resources for this and other episodes on our website at www.culanth.org. You can subscribe to Anthrop pod and anthrobites on itunes stitcher and soundcloud and you can follow the society for cultural anthropology on facebook and twitter